As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features conversations with UNT faculty, other subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with psychologist Dr. Kim Robinson. She holds a nursing degree, a master's degree in counseling, and a doctorate in psychology. Dr. Robinson is an expert on traumatic brain injury a former professor at Midwestern State University and Queen Mary University in London. She has been a psychologist for all four branches of the military, specializing in PTSD. Active with the Catholic Diocese of Fort Worth as a speaker on child sexual abuse and sex trafficking, Dr. Robinson is also an ambassador of Shared Hope International, a nonprofit organization that exists to prevent and eradicate sex trafficking and slavery worldwide. She is also currently working with Ranch Hands Rescue, a Denton nonprofit organization that serves as a sanctuary for animals and humans who have experienced trauma. They will be opening the first safe house for young male victims of human trafficking this year. People don't often think of males being victims of sex trafficking, and yet their numbers are far larger than anyone can imagine. Thank you, Dr. Robinson, for all your work, and welcome to the podcast. And thank you for the invitation. It's quite an opportunity. You have been involved in so many areas of tremendous importance in our world, from treating PTSD and traumatic brain injury, to battling the tragedy of human trafficking occurring all over the world, even as we speak. Today, we could talk about any of these things. I mean, any of these things would be an important and fascinating podcast. So today, let's talk about the important topic of human trafficking. People often think it happens in other countries, in other cities, in other communities, but it most assuredly does not. How did you first become involved in the cause of helping people to understand the presence and realities of human trafficking? As you were saying in the introduction of me, I was working for the military and I realized that many of them came to the military in order to escape child sexual abuse. And many of them left before the age of 18, because you can do that in the military if you can get permission. 
or you emancipate yourself, okay? And this wasn't always apparent initially when they would come to see me. However, it would eventually emerge. And that, I guess, number of people just really made me begin to think about what is, what is behind that and what could we do to address that. And about the same time, that's when the Catholic Diocese began a new program uh, looking at child sexual abuse because of what had happened within their own churches throughout the nation, really. And so I became a facilitator for them. In other words, teaching various parishioners throughout our 28 counties in Fort Worth, the program that they had created. And it was in doing that that I began to look in my own backyard here in Denton, having just retired from the military and moved into the Denton area. And lo and behold, in the year 2020, there were four pretty remarkable cases in the county of Denton, one of which occurred in my work backyard, a block and a half away from where I work at a local church. There was a youth pastor who was trafficking young girls between here and Kansas. So literally in my backyard. None of us want to think of these kind of things happening in our backyard, but it really hit me at that point. What is it that you most want people to know? Is that it, that it can happen in your backyard? I know you lecture a lot, you speak a lot, you make people aware of this horrible tragedy. What is it that you really find important for people to understand that perhaps they don't? Mm-hmm. Two things, really. It's hard for me to narrow it down to just one. Sure. <laughs> The first one has to do with this is the largest illegal enterprise in the world. Okay. It is the fastest growing of the ones out there. Illegal drug trafficking is probably the largest at this point, but with the growth in human trafficking, it will soon surpass it. When I first started talking, it was the third largest. In the short period of time that I've been doing this, in a year and a half, it's already surpassed what is now the third one, which is gun sales, illegal gun sales. So it is currently second, but it's moving into first place pretty quickly. So that's one of the things that I think is important. The second is I think parents and grandparents need to begin talking to their minors by the age of 10 about this. Many people look at me in horror when I say that because 10 seems so young until they learn that the average age for a young girl to be recruited into this crime is between the ages of 12 and 14 and for boys between 11 and 13. And according to law enforcement, law enforcement is unable to extract them from that world until they're about 15 and 17. Why is that? Just because it takes that long. This is a very clandestine crime. They don't want to be caught. The punishment is pretty severe. And so as a result, it's very secretive and well hidden. And so it's very difficult to catch. And and they don't want to catch just one. They want to catch an entire syndicate. Okay. So they want to understand how far out does it stretch in a community and try to collectively arrest as many as possible. 
I would think, you know, you, you say it's important to talk to your grandchildren. Probably most people think, well, these victims are from poor areas. I don't need to talk to my grandchildren because we aren't impoverished. We're middle class or whatever. Yeah. Is that true? Well, here's a statistic that I hope will stay with everyone. And that is that one out of every five youth will be sexually solicited online through social media by the time they graduate from high school. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. If your grandchild or child is playing games on the internet, if they are on a social media platform where they are interacting with people that there's no way to verify who that person is on the other end, it could be that predator who's, you know, 28 and a half years old, the average age of a trafficker, and their number one goal is to meet them in person and recruit them into this trafficking sex ring. Well, as I understand it, there's been somewhat of a shift from years ago when someone was in prostitution, they'd be arrested along with the whole group, the whole organization of that. And as I understand it, law enforcement and our legislatures are now understanding that, wait a minute, we have a group of victims here involved in this. You don't run the victims into jail. Uh, I believe there was a uh, Trafficking Victims Protection Act in, enacted in 2000. Can you talk about that? Yes. It was the first time that human trafficking was labeled as a crime. And the reason we didn't have a law addressing it before that time is because most people thought that the smuggling law would cover that. And so people didn't understand the difference between a smuggler and a trafficker. So a smuggler commits a crime against a nation, against a state. And what happens is that an individual who wants to work in a different country hires a smuggler to smuggle them into the country, usually for the purpose of a job, okay? But in human trafficking, that's not the case. Oftentimes, the victim does not understand what they are being recruited for, you know, they may ostensibly say that it's for a job, but come to find out it's not the job that they were promised. Okay. And so, you know, when we talk about human trafficking, we're talking about two different kinds. One is compelled labor. The other is sex trafficking. So depending what kind of trafficker we're talking about. But in either case, this is a crime against an individual, not against a nation. Okay. So that that's the distinction, and that's why there was the impetus to create this bill in the year 2000. Since that time, the bill has been expanded at least five times just to make sure that our strategies were addressing the needs of the victims and the deception by the traffickers. So we're understanding better how to go about interfering with the trafficking ring and understanding how to recognize the victims who are out there. Well, it's interesting you talk about the different types of human trafficking. People commonly think of sex trafficking, but there's also the labor trafficking, human labor trafficking. And I interviewed Dr. Given 
Cachepa earlier. He was a victim of human trafficking. He had lived in Zambia and it was an amazing, amazing conversation with him. And he said when he tells people he was from Zambia, they assumed he was trafficked in Zambia. He wasn't. He was trafficked here in Texas, but it was labor trafficking. And it really opened up my eyes to the fact that there's labor trafficking going on in nail spas or restaurants or construction sites or farms. I'm sorry to say I had not been really fully aware of that in the past. I actually saw that interview and it was remarkable. His story is truly worth hearing. And when you compare the two, interestingly enough, the sex trafficking is the one that is becoming more popular among traffickers simply because it is more prosperous. In other words, it makes more money for the trafficker. And so clearly the law addresses both sides and as it should. But what we're seeing is that sex trafficking is profiting the traffickers much better. And just to give you an idea of that, the average trafficker in the Dallas-Fort Worth area makes about $600,000 off of each victim. Each victim? Each sex trafficked victim. Okay, I'm, I'm really going to go out on a limb here and say, people are going to say, why, Susan, why don't you realize this? But you're a psychologist. I have to say, what is wrong in the human psyche that there are so many people willing to pay for that kind of a service? I mean, I... You know, I get everyone has drives and whatnot, but this is outrageous. Mm-hmm. We, you know, for so long, we were addressing the supply end of this market. Okay. And it is a market. And, and as you know, in economics, wherever there is demand, there is going to be distribution and supply. So we began to look at the demand side of this equation, which means the buyer of commercial sex acts, okay? So now there are organizations out there that are specifically targeting that demand side, trying to divert buyers, catching them online when they're trying to make a purchase and warn them of what the penalty is for that crime. We now have in certain locations, not everywhere, but certainly Dallas has this, there are diversionary classes for first offenders. So in other words, when they are charged with the crime of buying a commercial sex act with a minor, they go to a class in order to have their crime expunged from their record. And so they have to attend a full day training for understanding what's really going on. Many, many of the buyers think they're doing a favor for the victim because they think the victim gets the money that they pay. And that is not the case. The victim gets none of that money. It all goes to the trafficker. Well, we're right here on this 35 corridor. So I understand this area is quite a hotbed for that sort of thing. Am I correct? We are the second highest hotspot in Texas. Houston beats us by just a bit. And Texas is the second highest in the nation. California beating Texas by a bit. So yes, and it is because of this I-35 corridor for the purpose of transportation of victims. However, it's also because we are a mecca for major entertainment venues, such as sporting events, conferences, 
entertainment, festivals. You know, we have the facilities to accommodate hundreds of thousands of people. And so people come from all over the world and the traffickers recognize that. So again, thinking in economic terms, they are going wherever the money is. And we in the United States, we're the richest country in the world. And we reward those traffickers handsomely. I had no idea that they were making that amount of money per victim. That's really incredible. Give us a description of a common trafficker. The average trafficker is 28 and a half years old in the United States. Most of them are male here in the United States, but in other countries, we do tend to see females more often than we do here in the U.S. They are motivated by greed, by a need for power and control. And interestingly enough, many of them were victims themselves. And the way that they escaped their victimhood was to become powerful and in control by becoming traffickers themselves. They used the very tricks that were used on them, on their victims. During your Ollie lecture that you gave previously called The True Cost of Human Trafficking, you showed a film that had a very big impact on me. One of the things that I took away from it was how devious the traffickers were in luring normal, high-achieving girls into their world, preying on them with sophisticated schemes of scouting them out, getting information, walking them down the road into that world by such an orchestrated, planned series of events. I mean, the stalking that went involved, I was shocked. Can you talk about potential victims? Who might they be and and how that works? Well, I want to start off by saying anyone could be a victim. This is an opportunistic type of crime. But the typical victim that we're learning about through the hotline that exists here in the U.S. is that it is someone who might come from a home where perhaps there is an alcoholic parent where there may be domestic violence, where there may be drugs or alcohol involved. So the parent isn't paying as much attention to the child as perhaps is necessary. Perhaps they're one of seven children and one of them has a very serious illness. And so the parents don't have the time really to dedicate to the other children. And so these children are looking for guidance. They're looking for attention. There may be some economic difficulties involved. And then this sugar daddy comes along, posing as a boyfriend in many cases, and showers this individual with gifts and opportunity, promises of a well-paying job. And it's very alluring. It's very tempting to this, quote unquote, neglected or abused child. And so they began to sever the relationship between the child and the parent. They isolate them, isolate them from their friends as well, so that they become more and more dependent upon this, quote unquote, masquerading boyfriend or girlfriend. And I I do want to always make sure that I include that the victims can be male or female. We tend to only think of females, and and I don't want to be guilty of continuing that misunderstanding. So yes, they use all sorts of tactics in order to lure a victim in. You had mentioned in the lecture the fact that 
if someone happens to have a much older boyfriend or girlfriend, it might be a red flag or they're coming home with really expensive gifts, that kind of thing. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you can imagine, you know, if, if the average age is for a girl, say 13 years old, and she has a 28 and a half year old boyfriend, I mean, that should be a red flag for all of us. And, exactly. Um, you know, and then suddenly, you know, someone who generally shops at Walmart or, or Target suddenly comes home with a Louis Vuitton purse or, or bag of some kind. Um, you know, there, there are reasons to be asking questions at that point. But it could be opportunities, too. So, for instance, someone who's not been able to travel much and suddenly the boyfriend is taking them across the United States or outside of the country, getting them used to the idea of traveling, again, separating them from their families. Well, once a victim starts to have a hint of the fact that things are not right, this is not good for me, are there strategies that a trafficker can use to prevent them from seeking help? I mean, I see these when I go into the women's room on a rest stop or whatever. You see, are you a victim? Call. Yes. Uh, which is great that there are ways that people are reaching out. But are there ways that the trafficker can prevent them from going to get help? There, there are all sorts of psychological tricks and, and I would say even torture in terms of preventing an individual from being able to reach out for help. Oftentimes, the trafficker has really a, a collection of people that work for him or her, and that could be a recruiter, you know, the person that actually goes out and identifies a potential victim and brings that victim into the stable, and that's what they call it, a stable of victims, just like a horse stable. That in itself is offensive. Granted, granted, uh, much of the terminology within this trafficking world is very offensive, and I try to be careful about the terms that I use. Oh, but no, it, I'm not saying you <laughs> offend me. It's the fact that they use that term yes, is offensive. Yes. Well, yeah. and, and one of the other common roles that a trafficker will hire, and that is someone called the bottom bitch, and, and forgive my language, but that is in fact the term that they use. And this is a female who is responsible for the daily maintenance, of the basic needs of the victims in the stable. That could include medical care, but it could also include making sure that any punishment that is being meted out to the victim is in fact applied. If you know the victim did not meet her quota for the week or the day or whatever, perhaps he has chosen not to feed her. And so the bottom female I'm going to use that term, um, is responsible for making sure that she does not eat for the period of time that's been designated by that trafficker. So just by listening to that sort of thing, you can begin to hear the psychological control that those traffickers have over the victim. So in other words, the trafficker has control over what they wear, when they sleep, when they go to the bathroom. I mean, almost every aspect of their life. And so to try to escape can be a very dangerous proposition. Because if you can imagine, the trafficker sees that victim as an asset. And I gave you a monetary value of what it is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. 
Well, a trafficker is not going to be willing to lose a $600,000 asset very easily and will do just about whatever has to be done to retrieve that individual. And it can be brutal, both for the victim as well as for the victim's family. That is so sad. It's so sad to think that that's going on right here. What can we do? Are there signs? Is there any way that we could perhaps see someone and think of them as, I mean, what can we do just as a community? What can we do? Recognizing what some of the signs are both within the victim, you know, if you are in a public place, and I'm going to mention a couple of them that are fairly common, and that is Let's say you're traveling and you stop at a truck stop and you notice maybe it's eight o'clock at night and you're noticing a young girl or girls who are jumping from one truck cabin to the next. They may be scantily clad because they don't get to choose what they wear. That is selected by usually the bottom female or the trafficker. And they're spending about 20 to 30 minutes in the cabin okay, of the truck. That's enough to call the national hotline. That's enough to call local law enforcement and alert them to what you are seeing. And as long as I'm on that topic, I also want to say it is not our responsibility to figure out what's going on. All the national hotline asks us to do is to call and report the facts as we have seen them. And they will then incorporate the right people to be able to address it. I don't recommend that we, the average citizen, interfere because they are ruthless. That trafficker is not far away from his victims, okay? He is watching and he is monitoring what is going on. And if we interfere, then we may become victims of one kind or another. So that's why I'm saying I advocate that people call the national hotline or local law enforcement If you're seeing it in action, I'd call law enforcement first because they can act then and there. If you're at a hotel, you know, you're on vacation and you're staying in a hotel and you notice that six or seven rooms down the hall from you, you are noticing men coming in and spending no more than 20 or 30 minutes at a time, in and out, one at a time. That's a red flag. That something's going on in those rooms. And again, you know, that's enough to be able to call and report something. The other thing, if if you want to narrow it down in terms of, is it my child, is has your child changed significantly? We all know our children better than most. My daughters never had to say anything. I could tell by looking something was wrong. (laughs) And so I would needle them until I got to the bottom of it. And so you'll, you'll notice that a gregarious child will suddenly become very withdrawn, perhaps depressed, and vice versa. A very introverted child suddenly becomes very outgoing and almost uh, aggressive. So, you know, a major change in personality, again, all of the luxuries or the accoutrements that the trafficker may be buying in terms of clothing or purse or jewelry, whatever, the child may begin to leave the house in the middle of the night, may not come home at night, maybe skipping school, maybe truant, the grades are dropping. You're just seeing this dramatic change take place. And 
And to me, one of the classic signs is we generally tend to keep our friend circle the same throughout school. We don't change it much unless we're changing schools, of course. But, you know, the friend I had in second grade, I had until I graduated from high school. If you see your child suddenly changing completely who their peer group is, and that peer group doesn't appear to have the same value system that your child grew up with in your household, that's a major red flag. Do you find that the law enforcement and the health professionals, mental health professionals, is there more training involved now to recognize the victims? Thankfully. In 2017, there was actually a law that mandated that anyone who works for the government, law enforcement, healthcare, mental health, we all now have to have one hour of training for the purpose of recognizing a victim, what are the signs and symptoms, and who do we report to? And just this idea that if we report, we are not going to have to get involved. We can report it anonymously. People are not going to be showing up at your door. You know, I hear this from people. Even today, I was with my hairdresser just yesterday, and there was this fear that if I report something, that the trafficker will find me and and I will suffer consequences. And I said, you can report this anonymously. You don't have to give any identifying information. Just give the information that you know, and then they take over. They will call local law enforcement, Homeland Security, and the FBI, and they begin to investigate it. What you're saying is reminding me of an article I read a while ago. There was a victim and a man in a car, and I guess he had been her trafficker, and they'd been stopped by the local police around here in Denton. And the policeman had recognized the fact that, hey, Here's this young girl with this older man. And so he and his partner separated the two. And of course, they when they asked her, is everything okay? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Well, they kept asking her, are you sure everything's okay? You all right? You, you sure you don't want to talk? And finally, she shook her head. No, she shook yeah. her head and they took her and they saved her. Yeah, and and what you are pointing out is crucial for all of us who might interact with a victim who might have a trafficker nearby. It is very important that you separate the two because that psychological control that that trafficker has over that victim, if that trafficker thinks that the victim is ratting on him or her, the consequences for the victim can be very severe. And so it is very important that we separate them and and ask questions in a way that helps the victim know that even if now might not be the opportunity to escape, here's the information you need. Here's the hotline. Know that there are safe houses and shelters available to you. We can hide you in that shelter so that the trafficker cannot find you. We will make sure that all your basic needs are taken care of, including reunification with your family, if that's what you choose to do. Thank goodness there are people like you and in the law enforcement that are working on this kind of thing to help the victims, because I can only imagine, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine what it must be like for a victim to 
reorient themselves into a normal lifestyle again after you have been damaged in so many different ways. It must be extremely difficult. It is. And many of them have started to write books to explain what that is like and how difficult it is. Because imagine that the lifestyle and skills that you have to learn in order to be successful in this industry is very different from what you have to have in order to be successful in a legal enterprise. And so how to dress, how to speak, how to interact with people almost has to be reprogrammed. So it it takes a great deal of time to do all that. And I'm sure even just having that sense of independent self-sufficiency, whatever, after you've been under someone's control to that, and they're young, to be young, 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 and under someone's control. You you don't even know who you are yet. That's right. To have to go through that. I, my heart just breaks for them. Now with this COVID, online is increasing. I'm curious, you mentioned that, what did you say? One out of every five young people is solicited by the time they graduate from high school. So, hey, we've gone big time online. We have. I wonder, has that increased with that? The National Hotline on Human Trafficking reports that in March of this year, compared to March of last year, which of course is when we started lockdown, the numbers have doubled. So last year, there were 11,500 cases that were reported to the national hotline. So if it's doubled, we can do the math and realize just how much more frequently it is happening. Because our young people, all of us, are now online more often. And so once again, here's where market forces come to play. The traffickers are going to go wherever those victims are, and they are the supply chain. What is the C7? The C7 is a coalition of seven counties in the North Texas area that have coalesced in order to be as effective as possible in fighting human trafficking. And it it addresses all parts of the marketing model. In other words, there are some organizations that address the demand side, some the supply side, some just prevention and education. We have five shelters or safe houses in our area. And so if, let's say, someone is retrieved from a sex trafficking ring in the Dallas area, it may not be safe for them to go to Dallas. So we will transport them to a different location, making it harder for the trafficker to identify where they may be hidden at this point in time. So it's a wonderful group of wonderful professionals who help each other in combating this crime. Now, you had mentioned during your lecture a film called Be the One. Yes. Be the One film. What is that? It is a film that our governor and his wife, Cecilia, wanted to create to just educate people. It was just a very basic educational film for the average person, not, not a professional, just you know the average person on the street to alert them to the signs and symptoms that we might see in the event you know they were to witness something and who to call. So how does a person see that? Is that available online? 
It is available online. There was also a billboard campaign, Do You See Me? It it was in 79 different locations throughout the state of Texas with the national hotline on it. So it's really just an effort to help educate the public about the prevalence and incidence of it. Now, you are involved with Shared Hope International, is that right? I am an ambassador for them. And what is that? Oh, my goodness. They are the first organization that really was created after this law for Protection of Victims Act was created. Linda Smith uh, was the House representative for the state of Washington. It was in her line of duty, I guess, that she was introduced to sex trafficking. She witnessed it and was determined to uh, do something about it. So she created this organization called Shared Hope International. And it has been active in a variety of areas, uh, one prevention and education, but also in legal advocacy. So they have been responsible for the proposal of laws on a federal level to help address the crime. And they train many of us. They have trained me. I I can really give them credit for a lot of what I know. They allow us to use the films that they have created to help educate the public. So they are well known within the field. Well, I had read in the Dallas Morning News, they were talking about, and you I'm sure know much more about this than I remember from the article, but they were talking about legislation that grants clemency to victims, understanding that many even have been lured into drug addiction. I mean, that's one way of controlling people, get them addicted to drugs or whatever, but other things too. And that what they were finding was they had fewer numbers than they had hoped in the clemency application process. The chairman of the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles thought that what needed to be done was that there needed to be more public awareness of this, that a lot of the victims don't don't know that exists, nor do they know how to take advantage of it. True, true. Many of the victims don't see themselves as victims, quite frankly. Just helping them understand what they have experienced is is one of the big steps and what resources are, in fact, available to them. One of the major campaigns that many of us are advocating for in this legislative session here in Texas is a bill called House Bill 162. And it's been uh, proposed by State Representative Sean Theory out of the Houston area. And it's called the Safe Harbor Law. So currently in the state of Texas, um, there are only 39 states in the United States that have a Safe Harbor Law. Ours says that any victim of, of sex trafficking, 14 or younger, is allowed to have what we call a diversionary program. And instead of being charged with prostitution, they will be put into a program where they, you know, it's like a safe house where they, you know, have the opportunity to go to college and to find a job and and just recover, receive the mental health care that they need to recover and become productive citizens. We draw the line at the age of 14 in the state of Texas. Which means what? It's So if you're you're 15, 16, or 17, that option is not available to you. Oh, my word. No. 
Right. And, and so the other 38 states, theirs are older. Okay. So in other words, some are at 16, some are at 17. I don't know why Texas chose 14, but that's part of what we're trying to change is that we want it under the age of 18 because the federal law says that if you are under the age of 18 and you are sex trafficked, that you are a victim. You did not agree to do that. Children are not mature enough to be able to make that kind of an arrangement, that agreement with a trafficker to say that I'm willing to exchange this for money. And so we want it to match the federal law. Okay. So that's one of the provisions in this bill. And then the other thing is that uh, law enforcement officers take possession of the minor and transfer them to the Department of Family and Protective Services. Right now, you have to, the trafficker has to be a family member in order for Child Protective Services to intervene. So if your trafficker is not a family member, they have no jurisdiction. And how often is that? I mean, I'm sure it happens, but I would think that would be the minority of cases, wouldn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it happens. Don't don't get me wrong. But Child Protective Services is set up to help abused and neglected children. And even though, you know, the law is not saying that Child Protective Services should provide all of those resources, only that they be the reservoir of the list of resources. So if a child is reported to them, that they then direct them to a safe house that would be appropriate for them. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So, um, and, the, and the other thing is that we not use the word delinquent when we're talking about a child who's been extracted from sex trafficking, that they be considered a child uh, who needs protection. The word delinquent implies criminal. And, and so we want to eliminate that terminology completely. Well, good luck with that. Where is that law along the legal process? Uh, right now, it is still in committee. I have just last week, I wrote all nine members of that committee and asked them to please take it out of committee so that the uh, House of Representatives can actually vote on it uh, and then send it to the Senate. There are four members of that committee who happen to be in our area. The chairwoman of the committee is Victoria Nieve. She's from Dallas. Uh, Representative David Cook. He's from Mansfield and part of Fort Worth. Uh, Jeff Leach is from Plano, Allen and Richardson. And Representative Anna Maria Ramos, also from the Dallas Addison. And what is the name of the bill again that they're considering? Well, the name is a long one. Um, The short name is the Safe Harbor Law, okay? But it's House Bill 162. Perhaps it will be helpful if the listeners are aware of that. That, that is exactly. in process. Yeah, so that's, that's <laughs> Feel free to, to contact them. <laughs> I have a question, too, with the clemency uh, applications. Would women that and men that have already been convicted and even perhaps served time in jail, could they be pardoned for their crimes under this program? Do you know? I just, while we were talking, it occurred to me. When, are you talking about victims of sex trafficking? Yes. Traffickers? yes. Okay. The victims. The victims. Under the age of 14, yes, because they're allowed to go into that diversionary program where they're not charged. But that's why we want it changed. 
so that it's anyone under the age of 18 rather than just under 15, so 14 and under. So these victims could still have a prostitution charge on their records and they go to build their new life and uh, go on to do bigger and better things. That's quite a lot to have to overcome. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It, it can definitely impact their ability to be employed. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit more about the Ranch Hands Rescue project that you're working on. I mentioned in the introduction, I think that is so important for people to be aware that males are also victims. Can you talk to us about that? Certainly. We're very excited. We were hoping to open this month, but it's going to be May 1st before we're able to open. COVID has, you know, put um, many things on the back burner and, you know, just setting up the safe house has taken a lot more time than we had thought. So, but we're excited next month to be opening up this house. We already have two victims on our waiting list that have been retrieved within the state of Texas. We have them in temporary safe places at this point in time. And it is designed that they can stay for at least 18 months as part of their recovery. We're not going to kick them out if they need a, a few more months after that. But the idea is that they get the education that they need, they get the mental health care that they need, medical care if necessary, and that we set them up to succeed within some sort of employment program. Part of what we're looking at is having mentors for them, people in the community who are willing to donate their time and talent and treasure to help mentor these young boys and give them a good start in life. So what sort of mentors would you be looking for? Mentors who can help with things that are we consider very basic, you know, that we have learned over the years in terms of how to um, operate a business. Many of them want to go on and, and have their own businesses. So learning entrepreneurship, learning how to just get along with people in your work environment. Again, comparing what they had to do when they were trafficked to what it's going to take to be successful in the even the retail world is so different. Their language needs to change. I, I was telling you earlier, the the language or terminology used within that culture is is not something most of us would um, be comfortable with, <laughs> and yet that is their language. And so, you know, those basic things that we don't think about. Dr. Robinson, you're one of my new heroes. Oh, bless your heart. It takes a village, though. I'm telling you, we have all got to get on this train, and we've all got to be mindful of that. You know, one of the things I want people to know is about that national hotline. And the number is really easy. It's 888-3737-888. And that is the national hotline that people can call and just give the information even anonymously. So I ask everyone to put that in their phone right away. Just get your phone out and do that <laughs> so that if you ever need it, it's available. Sounds like a good plan. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for making us aware of the things that you know. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. I, I really want to get this information out there, and I think this helps. This has been Susan Supak speaking with Dr. Robinson from the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.